we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 5. And uh, we'll talk about something tonight. We'll, it'll take us a few minutes to get there, but it's a, kind of a stunning reality that the key to dealing with terror is fear. Fear is the key to dealing with terror. And this, this being the day after the 6th anniversary of, of the September 11th attacks in New York and on the Pentagon and the, the plane that went down in Pennsylvania, the key to dealing with terror is fear. I just want you to take that thought and kind of tuck it away. We'll come back to it in a few minutes. But we have been watching, Cheryl and I, pay close attention, as you well know, to what's happening in Israel. We watch it very closely, partially because we have an interest in the Jewish people, which I'm going to speak to in just a minute, but also partially because it's the it's the the barometer of of what we would call the end times. What's going on in Israel has immediate and direct application to our lives as Christians and what we believe. If you if you keep an eye on what's happening there, you begin to see things in, in I believe, a right context. And, it, and it's important to do that for students, especially of prophecy and of Scripture, that you keep an eye on Israel. And I've encouraged you all to do that before. And there are different ways you can do that. You can go on online and sign up to Arut 7 or Arut Shiva which is the Channel 7 News in Israel. You can get daily updates um, from Arutz Shiva in Israel and get it online. Uh, Arutz, A-R-U-T-Z 7.com Is there a dash in there? Is it just... Or just... You can just Google it. Arutz, A-R-U-T-Z uh, either the number 7 or write it out Shiva S-H-E-V-A is our English way of, of that so the number 7 in Hebrew so you just learned some Hebrew tonight way to go feel good about yourself <laughs> but anyway you, you can get these downloads you can see what's going on and keep an eye on things and just this week it's come out that Ehud Omert the Prime Minister uh, extraordinaire of Israel is working on an eight-point document or has, has uh, agreed upon an eight-point document with Mahmoud Abbas from the Fatah uh, arm of the uh, Palestinian people and that document will do such things if it's put into place in November at the Mideast Summit that our country and our administration is really pushing for. If put in place, it's going to displace tens of thousands of Jews who are living in settlements on the West Bank. It will divide Jerusalem leadership-wise between a Palestinian governor and a Jewish governor, which will work out real well. And it will give complete control and authority, not only religiously but also politically, of the Temple Mount to the Palestinians. And there are many more things. And, and some, you know, it's interesting when I when I share things like that, there are those who react as as I do. I see that and I just go. Oh. There are others who go. So is it a step toward peace? And if you've done any reading or study or watching historically in the last 10, 20, 30 years, you know that it is not a step toward peace, that every inch of land that is given up is just a foothold for the, the Arab world that is anti-Israel to drive Israel bit by bit, piece by piece into the sea. Now, now I, I tell you that not to say that we should be worried. But the reality is, well, I, I believe personally that Israel is going to have to get to a place where it is indefensible. I believe if we read Ezekiel and we especially look at the Gog Magog War, and we actually did a teaching on that a while ago, and you can you can pick that up on, on CD if you want to hear it. But when you look at the Gog and Magog War, what what it indicates is Israel is attacked in such a way that they are there's no way there is no way that they can protect themselves, and at that point God will supernaturally intervene in a way that we have not seen, in, at least in our in our lifetime. So Israel has to get to that place, and, and though I am one who stands with Israel, and, and, and I'm one that if you ask me where do you think they should give up land? No, I don't. I think they should stand firm. As a matter of fact, I'm all for them you know, increasing the land that is rightfully theirs. That's just my opinion, and I know it's good. I've got to be careful because sometimes I tread into political areas where I'm talking spiritually, but man, with Israel it's really hard to not be political and be spiritual and biblical at the same time. I mean, it's all kind of wrapped up together. But um, the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 9 
Romans chapter 9, verse 14. Paul writes, There is no injustice with God, is there? I'll let you answer that. There is no injustice with God, is there? No. No. Paul says, May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. And the reason I I mentioned Israel here is I was asked an interesting question just this week. Do you support Israel no matter what? Do you support Israel no matter what they do or have done? Are you just lock-stepping, which is an interesting phrase to use with Israel, are you just, you know, stepping in line with Israel no matter what? Even if they do bad things, for right or for wrong, do you just stand with Israel blindly? Because, as this person was asking, they said, because they've, they've done bad things too. Granted, hey, it's a secular nation right now. It's not a spiritual Israel. Of course, the Bible told us that would happen first. That the people would come back before God put His Spirit into them. So I answer that with this question. Do you support the church no matter what it does or what it has done? Right or wrong? Now we get into a sticky wicket because if you look at church history over the last 2,000 years, it ain't, ain't always been pretty. And when I say I stand for the church, I don't stand for the crusades. I don't stand for the Inquisition. I don't stand for people marching and wiping out entire villages and raping women and killing children under the banner of the cross. That's not the church. But the world sees that and says, oh, that's the church. In the same way people will look at Israel and say, oh, that's, that's Israel. So no, I don't, I don't stand for that. But I stand unequivocally for the church. It is God's instrument in the world today to be the voice, the mouthpiece of salvation. To, to, be in the, to be the light, the city on the hill. That is what He has called us to. Have we always done it right? No. In fact, we've tragically done it very wrong in our history. But I stand for the church as God intended. And in the same way I stand with Israel, God's chosen people, recognizing His determination in, with, and through the Jewish people. He is not done. He has a plan for the church, a very clear plan, an obvious plan, that we don't even need to discuss really. Most of you here tonight, you know the plan for the church. He also has an equally important and valid and valuable plan for Israel. And he's working them both. I don't stand with Israel because they do the right thing. I stand with Israel because it's the right thing to do. And I truly believe that biblically. Romans chapter 11 verse 28 says, From the standpoint of the gospel they are enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice they are beloved for the sake of the Father. See, Paul lived at a time when he was preaching and he was teaching and he was going from town to town in the name of Christ after he had rejected the old life and accepted the Savior. As he was doing that, his greatest persecution was from Israel. Was from his fellow Jews. To the point in another place where he says, you know, they're after me night and day. I mean, it's just a bad situation. And so he says, from the standpoint of the gospel, they're enemies for your sake. Because very practically speaking, they were. The Jewish people were the most anti-Paul of anybody in his day. His own people. Which is why he says, from the standpoint of the gospel, they're enemies. But, he says, from the standpoint of God's choice, they're beloved. For the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. They may be set against me, Paul says. But that doesn't mean that God is against them. They may not be making right choices. They may be missing something right now. But they are still God's chosen people because the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. Verse 30 of Romans 11. For just as you once were disobedient to God, and please don't forget that, we all were, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience, so these also now have been disobedient that because of the mercy shown to you, they may also be shown mercy. Isaiah cries out in Isaiah 62 verse 1, For Zion's sake I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake I will not keep quiet until her righteousness goes forth like brightness and her salvation like a torch that is burning. That's why I say wherever Israel stands, I stand with it. Because the Bible tells me to. 
Even if they're doing wrong things, hey, I think personally, politically, let me just step out of my pastor role for a second, Rick talking politics, I think Ehud Omer, the Prime Minister, is making tragic mistakes. I think he's the wrong guy for the job, although God has him in that place, so I'm just going to defer to the Lord on that one. But, I still stand with the people. Because I believe the Bible encourages us to do so. Why are we talking about this? Well, we're looking at Israel, aren't we? In 1 Samuel, the people of Israel, and you're going to see tonight mistakes that they make, they are going to do again the wrong thing. We don't stand with them because they do the right thing. Stand with them because it's the right thing to do. I want to pray and then we'll get on into this. Father, would you bless our study tonight and the teaching of the Word. Our understanding, even Father of Israel from then, that we might understand better Israel now. And Father, not just be all hung up, we're not, we're not just um, stuck in this one area, but it is so important and so much a part of our spiritual lives and our understanding. And, and even, Lord, in this section of Scripture, in this section of the Hebrew Scriptures that we're studying through, and we must understand both then and now these people that we're talking about. And so I pray that you'll take us down that road and help us to understand better. I pray tonight, Father, you'll give us application in these days of terror. Because we live at a very different time than we did a decade ago. Though a decade ago it was going on, most of us didn't know it. We didn't recognize it, Father. And now we do. And we are involved in what some have called a quagmire. And it's not the quagmire of Iraq, Lord. It's the quagmire of terrorism that's in the world. We don't know how to extricate ourselves from it. We realize, Lord, we are in a world of hurt. We have fallen on hard times. And I'm not sure, Lord, if these hard times are going to be recoverable. That we will be able to again go back to a time of just peace and and mindlessness. As we've had some in the past. I I don't know, Father. But I pray, Lord, tonight for peace. That passes understanding. I pray for a joy that comes directly from your Holy Spirit. And I pray for an expectation for what you're doing. And for the coming of our Lord Jesus. And in all of us, would you, in all of this, Lord, would you ground our faith, please, more strongly, more firmly in your word, in your Son, Jesus Christ, that we could walk with his name on our lips and with your song in our hearts, Father. We ask your Spirit to take us through the study of the word tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. God is the timeless teacher. He is the ultimate teacher, really. He's the schoolmaster who writes across the chalkboard of history, at least from my day. Now he would write, I guess, across the whiteboard of history, or ultimately it's probably just going to be the fingerboard where you walk up to the, a blank board and start writing, and I'm sure Microsoft has something like that figured out. But he writes, he writes across all of history to teach man repentance, to bring mankind back to him, to show us how to turn around. And love him again. And we will see this again with Israel tonight. How he continues to write, as it were, to inscribe on their hearts enough to draw them back. But he's not only the timeless teacher, he's also the perfect parent who alone maintains the right to discipline those among his children whom he determines to discipline. And this is where, with Israel, as with the church, we get into an area that may be a little challenging to grasp. And I want you to process this. In 1 Samuel chapter 4 on Sunday, we watched as the Philistines came against Israel. Once again, they're attacking this enemy of Israel. And what we talked about was that the Philistines were God's paddle of discipline. Israel was about to get spanked. And as we read in the study in in chapter 4 that 4,000 men of Israel were killed on the battlefield, back in verse 2 it tells us that. And so Israel thinks what we need, what we need is the ark. Let's go get the box, because that's where God lives, that's where God resides, right? In the box, God in a box. So let's go get the box and bring that into into battle. They do that, and 30,000 more... Israelites die. And think about those numbers. Total 34,000. If you took the entire population of Oak Harbor and Anacortes, you'd have about that. Think about that entire population base up here being wiped out in two skirmishes, two battles. 
And that's where Israel was at that point. It was called a great slaughter. Remember that? It was called a great slaughter in chapter 4. And we realize that the Philistines were God's instrument of punishment for Israel. They were the enemies of Israel. But God being sovereign used them to punish Israel. Now you won't find that if you study chapter 4. You won't find it coming out explicitly and saying, God punished them by calling the Philistines. We had to go back on Sunday to the book of Judges chapter 13 to discover that he had used the Philistines in the past to discipline Israel. You will see, you will know and find by the end of our study tonight that God did in fact call the Philistines to discipline Israel. That what happened in chapter 4 in these two battles was of the Lord, was his call, his decision. But now, and here's the interesting thing that we've got to get our hands around a little bit here, God is now going to punish the paddle. It's like a parent taking out an old wooden spoon, whacking the child, and then afterwards snapping the spoon and saying, I'm done with you. That doesn't make any sense. Save the spoon for the next time, you know. (laughs) Because you know there's going to be one. But God is going to punish the paddle. He uses the Philistines to discipline Israel, but they are still responsible for the fact that they attack Israel. So God used them to attack Israel, but now God is going to hold them responsible for attacking Israel, which is what he wanted them to do in the first place? Yes, absolutely. I don't know if it makes sense to you. I had to struggle with this one. They're the instruments of his choosing, and yet he holds them responsible for being the instruments of his choosing. And the question that comes to mind that I was talking about a little bit before, are the people of Israel in chapter 4, are they in the right? And the answer is no. They are not in the right, but they are still the people of Israel. They are still God's chosen people. Are the people of Israel today in the right just because they are Jews? No. But they are still God's chosen people of Israel. Therefore, Isaiah cried out, for Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. And so here's what God does. He is perfectly just. He needs to discipline his people. And so he allows the Philistines to attack. And they are disciplined, which accomplishes God's purpose. However, these people just attack my people. And they're going to pay for it. God is completely just. And he will mete out discipline now on the paddle itself. Watch this as we go through. Chapter 5, 1 Samuel. Now the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. So now the box is in their hands. And I don't mean to be offensive with talking about the box, but, but again, for us, remember from Sunday, it's the shadow of the substance. It is not the substance. The ark was incredibly important. In fact, it was the centerpiece of the tabernacle, the centerpiece of the Jewish faith that they would look at and consider and think about as they were drawing up to God. But it was still just the shadow of the substance. The substance, Paul said, is Jesus Christ. So now the Philistines have the box, and they take it, and they brought it to Ashdod, which is one of five major cities in the Gaza to Gezer area on the, on the seacoast of Israel there. And the Philistines took the ark, verse 2, of God and brought it to the house of Dagon and they set it by Dagon. Now Dagon was their god. Half fish, half man, god of the Philistines. If you picture a huge stony merman, you've got Dagon. Fish on the bottom half, man on the top half and, and this was their idol. Which again makes sense them being a seafaring people that they would come up with an idol of, of that nature. Dagon was also considered by the Philistines to be the father of Baal father of Baal, who we've talked about, is another god worshipped there in in the land of Canaan. Although that may be a somewhat fishy tale. But watch this. Verse 3. When the Ashdodites arose early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen on his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. So picture this. They bring the ark in. Hey, we captured Israel's ark. Great. We'll just stick this in our temple. And they put it by the idol to Dagon in their temple. They come in in the next morning. He's flat on his face. Before the ark of the Lord, as in worship. Hilarious. I love God's sense of humor here. So they took Dagon and they set him in his place again. Oh, he must have just fallen over. Our God fell over. We've got to prop him back up. I don't want a God that I have to prop up. Verse 4. But when they arose early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen on his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon, and both palms of his hands were cut off on the threshold, only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. 
Therefore neither the priests of Dagon nor all who enter Dagon's house tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. Because his head rolled off there, so they figure that must be a holy spot. Their God lost his head. Headless and handless, flat on the floor. And there's an important principle here about man-made guns. Gods, they are here today, gone tomorrow. <laughs> it's one of my favorite biblical puns. I had to use it. Here today, gone tomorrow. But you might say, okay, wait, Rick, you said the Ark of the Covenant wasn't the power, though, on Sunday. God was the power. Exactly. So what is God doing here? Remember that the ark, though it was the shadow of the substance, it was still the shadow of the substance. It was still the representation of God. The representation of His glory. The representation of His presence. And so God is teaching the Philistines an important lesson. Yes, you routed my people Israel, but that doesn't mean that you were right to do so. I allowed it to happen because my people needed discipline and they needed hard times to fall on them so that they would turn to me. However, you were wrong for doing it. He'll do the same thing with Babylon later on. He even calls Nebuchadnezzar his servant who he will call to punish Israel. And yet, he will turn around and say because you came against my people Israel, Nebuchadnezzar, I'm going to punish you. So he will use what he needs to use. But he holds man responsible for man's actions. You may have been a tool of discipline, Philistines, but it was not your God who was behind you in this. It was Israel's God. And the Lord, I believe, is sending a loud message to Philistia. I alone am God and there is no other. You set up my ark in the temple of your fishy face God and he's going down. And he's going to lose his head and his hands are not going to be there to help you anymore. And yet... Though God sends a very powerful message that their God cannot stand up, even before his shadowy, shadowy figure there, the Philistines won't listen. They don't listen. Why not? Why won't people just listen to the Lord? I think about this today. How many times have you talked to someone about Jesus and they just, just don't want to hear it? And you know, why? It's such a good thing. This message is so great. He is so wonderful. Why wouldn't you want Jesus? I mean, you all know all we need is five or ten minutes in the scriptures. Five or ten minutes praying with another believer. Five or ten minutes in worship to go, this is great. Why wouldn't someone want this? And it all comes down to one word, lifestyle. For the lifestyle of the Philistines was not one that would be compatible was following the Lord. It would mean change to follow the Lord. It would mean giving things up that service my appetite. And that's why people don't follow the Lord. Though it sounds good to do so, though you make a great case for it, though you have a compelling argument, people don't want to change the lifestyle, which brings me back to my belief that sin isn't the core issue, rebellion is. The sin is the outpouring of rebellion. The rebellious heart that says, I don't want to do it God's way. I want to do it my way. The lifestyle that accompanied Dagon worship, along with Ashtaroth and Baal and Molech, it wasn't just idol worship. It was a way of living day to day. It was incredibly self-indulgent, sexually indulgent, flesh-satisfying. It was a carnal lifestyle. Whereas we come to worship and we sit down and we stand and we sing songs and we focus on the Lord, they went to worship and found themselves a temple prostitute. And they paid their tithes so that they could have some time with the temple prostitute. From a pagan perspective, it's a brilliant idea for increasing your tithes. Come on to our church, men. Put five bucks in the box, and we got a woman out back for you. It was incredibly carnal. The whole lifestyle was. And to stop that and to believe in the God of Israel would, be, would mean to drop that. I don't want to quit my lifestyle. I don't want to have to change everything. My lifestyle is not compatible with church going. My, my lifestyle doesn't work. I'd have to give up Sunday football, and that's no good. My weeknights are mine. I like the way I live. And every time I go sit there in church and the guy starts talking about sin, I get real uncomfortable because I know he's talking to me. Someone told him what I did last week. I don't know how he knew. <laughs> and I can't go there and hear that and live this way. And so we have a choice to make. In fact, we here tonight. We can choose our lifestyle 
Or we can reject our lifestyle and accept the Lord Jesus Christ and live the way He's called us to. And I guarantee you, you make that choice, it's better by far. You'll have more joy, more peace, more happiness. You'll have more holiness. Life will have more meaning for you. All of that, it's the right decision. And I'm not going to read it right now. You can check this out. But Galatians chapter 5, verses 17 through 26 compares life in the Spirit to life in the flesh. The fruit of the Spirit versus the fruitlessness of the flesh. Compare the two. It's a great passage just to take someone to who's all you know stuck in their lifestyle and say, which is better to you? Would you rather have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control? Would you rather have these things? Or the list of the fleshly things, which is pretty ugly. Same passage right there, Galatians 5, 17-26. Read that. So the Philistine problem here in not wanting to accept God is really just a human problem. Now the hand of the Lord, verse 6, was heavy on the Ashdodites, and he ravaged them and smote them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territories. And I'm sorry, but I must point out that tumors, though it's a nice translation, is not the word. It's burning, swelling hemorrhoids. Now I told you that the Lord has a sense of humor. So he plagues them with horrible... Hemorrhoids, And I say burning, swelling, and I'm not adding that. It's three words in the Hebrew that indicate burning, swelling, hemorrhoids. This is the plague on the Philistines. It's amazing to me. It is quite literally the attack of the killeroids. That's what they're dealing with here. I mean, taking the Ark of the Covenant has now literally backfired on the Philistines. Verse 7 When the men of Ashdod saw that it was so They said the ark of the God of Israel Must not remain with us For his hand is severe on us And on Dagon our God So they sent and gathered all the lords of the Philistines To them and said What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel And they said let the ark of of the God of Israel Be brought around to Gath Our sister city (laughs) Let's send it over there and they brought the ark of the God of Israel around, verse eight, verse 9, after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city with very great confusion, and he smote the men of the city, both young and old, so that the tumors <laughs> broke out on them. You know what the word tumors is? The word broke there is literally burst. You get the picture. Amazing. The Philistines of, of the first city of Ashdod, they get it. They, they understand this is, this is punishment by the real God. So they have two choices there. Repent or get rid of the real God. Move him out. Send him over to our, to our other city. His hand is severe, they say. It is his hand doing this. Instead of turning away from Dagon and to the Lord, they choose to remove the ark and to stand with their headless, handless fish shod and hope that the burning and the swelling will go away. They have to stand with their God because they obviously cannot sit down. There's a timeless principle here, however. And this is a serious one. There is a principle here of, of dealing with sin and addiction. Listen to me carefully. You can't push Dagon over. He's, he's too Dagon heavy, okay? That's the last funny one. You can't push him over, but what you can do, and I'm, I'm, talking, about, I'm talking about alcoholism, I'm talking about uh, an addiction to smoking, I'm talking about a drug addiction, I'm talking about uh, a sexual addiction, uh, a pornographic addiction maybe on the internet, or some kind of a sin addiction that's just, man, it just dogs you, and you want to get rid of it. Cussing, I just wish I could stop cussing. Anything like that. Listen, you can't just push it over. But you can bring the Ark of God into the temple. Because the Ark of God has the power to push over the pagan idol. The addiction. You bring in the light, the darkness will flee, the darkness will break, it will fall face down. It cannot stand against the presence of the holiness of God. Against the light of His glory. Bring in the light to a dark room and watch I've tried this it's really cool watch the darkness just dissipate a little science experiment go home walk into your bedroom tonight flip on the light and watch what the dark does (laughs) now I'm being silly but, but think about this 
When you bring in the light, the darkness flees. And this is the truth with God. This is the message. 1 John 1.5 We have heard from Him and announced to you that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. Therefore, bring the Lord into the temple and the sin, the addiction, will flee. Try to push out the sin or the addiction yourself. You can't push it over. It's too heavy. You cannot by 12 steps, and that's why, by the way, in the 12-step program, one of those steps is acknowledging a higher power. Personally, I'm not sure the acknowledgement of a vague higher power is enough. Acknowledgement of the authority and lordship of Jesus Christ, that will push over the addiction. You don't just try to stop the addiction, you replace the addiction. You replace the sin nature with a focus on Jesus, with the things of Jesus. What were the things of Israel? Well, the ark was one of the things of Israel. It wasn't God, but it was one of the things of God. And when this thing of God was brought in, it changed everything. For you, the ark on the positive side may be the word. It may be getting into Bible study. It may be being more involved in worship, fellowshipping with other Christians, bringing into your temple the light of the glory of God that has the power to knock over the things of the enemy. Replace the darkness with the light. The Bible tells us, John 1, 4, In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness. The darkness did not comprehend it. Even today, the darkness doesn't get it. doesn't understand the light, but it does flee from the light. So the Philistines send the ark away to their sister city Gath and things start bursting there. Verse 10. Verse 10 tells us they sent the ark of the city of God then to Ekron because things were going bad in Gath. Okay, so first Ashdod, now Gath, now they sent it to Ekron. And as the ark of God came to Ekron, the Ekronites cried out. I'm sure they did. Two full cities of bad hemorrhoids would make anybody cry out. And it says, they brought the ark of God, of the God of Israel around us to kill us and our people. And they sinned therefore and gathered all the lords of the Philistines and said, send away the ark of the God of Israel. Let it return to its own place so that it will not kill us and our people. For listen, there was a deadly confusion throughout the city. The hand of God was very heavy there. And the men who did not die were smitten with tumors. And the cry of the city went up to heaven. Again, not tumors. But this... And this cracks me up, no pun intended, but the, the Ashdodites, if you think about that one, the Ashdodites get these killer hemorrhoids. So they send the ark to Gath. The Philistines of Gath, they get the same problem. They send the ark to Ekron. Three of the five major cities of the Philistines now are plagued. And it's not just hemorrhoids that we laugh at, it is killing people. It's so bad. I don't even want to think about that. It is a plague on the people. And as we'll see in a moment, and there was probably a plague of mice as well. It's likely that that there were mice everywhere and the mice were carrying the virus or the bacteria that was causing the problem all over the place. It was a horrific situation. By the way, going from Ashdod to Gath to Ekron and spreading this virus, that's how sin works in our world. It's a deadly virus. It's highly communicable, it's contagious, and it's absolutely lethal. James 1.14 says, Each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. And when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings about death. Now you might ask, what is the Lord doing in this plague? And I suggest that it was more than just punishment. I suggest that the plague on these three cities was nothing short of mercy. As God is trying to get the attention of the Philistines, plaguing them so they might consider not getting rid of the ark, but tossing out Dagon. Getting rid of their idol that was the true problem. But all the Philistines want to do, they don't want to listen to any possible mercy. And you say, mercy? Killer hemorrhoids? I mean, people dying from it? That doesn't sound merciful. It's very merciful because on an eternal scale, if they would turn to the Lord and away from their idol, it would mean salvation, which is always more merciful than allowing someone to live in their sin even if they think they're happy there. Think about that with friends and family. Allowing someone just to live in their sin is not merciful. What the world calls tolerance 
It's not merciful. It's the, it's the one of the most heinous. It's the most heinous thing you can do. Allow someone to just live in their sin. Don't say a word about it because you don't want to offend them. You'd rather watch them burn in hell for it. That is not merciful. It is merciful to go ahead and impose yourself upon that person and say, "Look, I've got to tell you about Jesus, and I hope you listen." But many people don't. The Philistines didn't. All they want to do is get rid of the ark. Let's get this God thing out of here, which is so like our culture today. Get that cross out of your cubicle at work. Remove the Christian poster from the workroom. We don't want that stuff here. Get the Ten Commandments out of the public realm. These things of God, we don't want to see these things. All they do is remind us of our sin. And Paul said the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. 1 Corinthians 1.18 But to those of us who are being saved, it's the power of God. He says in verse 22 of 1 Corinthians 1, For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. To Jews a stumbling block. And to Gentiles, foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And so the world will say, get rid of the ark, get rid of these Christian things, get those out of here, while you're saying, look, just remove the idol. So prepare yourselves. That's the hard work of evangelism is the rejection that comes with it. But don't stop. Don't stop. Because someone's going to figure it out. Someone's going to hear you. Eventually someone's going to turn to the Lord and be saved. Hey, look, we're a room full of someones who someone else didn't stop praying about. Who someone else refused not to say the name Jesus. Refused, refused to not say the name Jesus to us. Let's go on to chapter 6. Now the ark of the Lord had been in the country of the Philistines seven months. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners saying, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us how we shall send it to its place. They said, If you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but you shall surely return to him a guilt offering, and then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand is not removed from you. So they said, Well, what shall the guilt offering be which we shall return to him? And they said, Five golden hemorrhoids. And five golden mice. Mice, that's why I mentioned the mice before. According to the number of the lords of the Philistines, for one plague was on all of you and on your lords, so you shall make likenesses of your hemorrhoids, of your tumors, and likenesses of your mice that ravage the land, and you shall give glory to the God of Israel. Now that's the right thing to do right there. It's the one right thing that they got. Give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will ease his hand from you, your gods, and your land. Again, the idea with the mice is they probably were carriers. But they were part of this plague. These tumors, mice, all happening at the same time. And sadly to me, the Philistines wanted relief. But they didn't want to deal with the root issue. That is the sinful lifestyle that they didn't want to leave. I'll give you a good example. Right now, you may have read that Washington State is toying with what's called a mandatory vaccination law where it will be mandatory for young teenage girls to receive the HPV, vi- uh, the HPV vaccination. The human papilloma virus vaccination. And it's, it's just to protect you because HPV is the number one cause of cervical cancer among women. So they figure, hey, we've got this vaccination. We give this to our young girls and protect them against cervical cancer later. There's another way to protect against getting HPV. Don't have sex outside of marriage. Simple. That's the root issue in our culture, by the way. One of many root issues, root problems that we have is our sexual activity. And all you have to do is continue to teach abstinence. You might say, oh, Rick, well, you're one of those. Man, I I would rather give my daughter birth control and just not worry about it. Well, I'm sorry. I would rather teach my daughter the truth. But but what if she doesn't listen? You know what? I'm not going to give her a Band-Aid. I'm going to deal with the root issue. We're going to deal with the real problem. The real problem with Philistia was a a rejection of God. They said, okay, we'll make some, I mean, it's absolutely ridiculous. We'll make some golden hemorrhoids. And we'll make some golden mice. And we'll put them all together with the ark and try and send that back to Israel. and, And that will appease their God. And that will bring relief to us. And it is so like people in our world think today. Verse 6. It says, Why then do you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh 
hardened their hearts. Okay, this is recent history to them. They're, they know about Egypt. They know about what happened. Now this is several hundred years later, but they still know. Why do you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? When he dealt severely with them, did they not allow the people to go? And they departed. Now therefore, take and prepare a new cart and two milch cows. It's not milk cows, it's milch cows on which there has never been a yoke and hitch the cows to the cart and take their calves home away from them. Milch cows are cows that are nursing. So take two mama cows that are in the process of nursing their young, take the calves away from them, hook them up to the cart. And then, verse 8, take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart and put the articles of gold which you return to him as a guilt offering in a box by its side. <laughs> Imagine the Israelites getting that and opening up the box and going... <laughs> okay, the mice I get and Someone else looks and goes Yeah, that other thing you don't want to get <laughs> So, so the, the milk cow So here's, so here's the deal It goes, uh, they send it away on the cart So they get the ark on the cart Get this box with their guilt offering on the cart Send the cart away with these milk cows These nursing mama cows Send that away. And they say this, verse 9, it's amazing to me. Watch if it goes up by the way of its own territory to Beth Shemesh. Then he has done us this great evil. But if not, we will know that it was not by that not his hand that struck us. It just happened to us by chance. I, this, again, so like, so like the mindset of someone who says, I just, I just want to, I want to prove that it can't possibly be God. I want to show that this is not God who did this. I think it might be God, but I want to prove otherwise. So they stacked the deck against God. That's why they took these two milch cows and hooked them up to the cart. Because naturally, instinctively, those two mama cows would want to go back where their calves were. So they figure, we'll put the ark over the guilt offering on there, and we'll set them off. And if they turn right around and go back to their calves, which we know they will, then it wasn't the Israelites' God. And we'll just realize it was just by chance that three out of our five major cities broke out in hemorrhoids. So, what happens? By the way, if these cows were going to be supernaturally directed and take the ark back into Israel, would that make them holy cows? Verse 10. This, this story is just too rich with these things. Then the men did so. They took the two milch cows, they hooked them up to the cart, shut up their calves at home, they put the ark of the Lord on the cart, the box with the golden mice, and the likenesses of their tumors. Verse 12. And the cows took the straight way in the direction of Beth Shemesh. They went along the highway, lowing as they went. In other words, these cows are going, Oh, my calf, my calf. But they're still heading straight for Israel. They're not going back. Lowing as they went, they did not turn aside to the right or to the left. And the lords of the Philistines followed them to the border of Beth Shemesh. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. And they raised their eyes and saw the ark and were glad to see it. By the way, the wheat harvest, this is what time of the year? Anyone know? The wheat harvest in Israel is in what time of the year? Fall. You got a, you got two choices: fall or spring. Fall. Fall. No, it's spring. Okay, so it's the wheat harvest, and <laughs> the car came into the field of Joshua the Beth Shemite. This is not Joshua from before. This is just guy named Joshua lives in Beth Shemesh and stood there where there was a large stone, and they split the wood of the cart. As the Israelites did. And offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. The Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box which was with it. In which the article, were the articles of gold and they put them on the large stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices that day to the Lord. Oh praise God the ark is back. It's returned to us. Verse 16. When the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned to Ekron that day. Verse 17, these are the golden tumors which the Philistines returned for a guilt offering to the Lord. One for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, and one for Ekron. There you go, standing for each one of the five cities of the lords of the Philistines, five golden hemorrhoids, and the golden mice, according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines belonging to the five lords, both of fortified cities and of country villages. The large stone on which they set the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua, the Beth Shemite. Now it's all good, right? The ark's back. 
Philistines, man, they were dealt with. Israel, they're offering sacrifices. They're worshiping God. It's all good. Right? Wrong. The lesson is not yet learned in Israel. Verse 10. Oh, I'm sorry. Verse 19. He struck down some of the men then of Beth Shemesh because they had looked into the ark of the Lord. They apparently thought, let's double check make sure everything's still there. And they opened it up. They looked inside. And he, the Lord, struck down of all the people 50,070 men. And the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a, here's that little two-word phrase I told you to remember before, great slaughter. A great slaughter. Who is able to Beth Shemesh men said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath Jerem, saying, The Philistines have brought back the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. We can't handle it here. This is absolutely mind-boggling to me. A handful of Beth Shemites curiously looked into the ark and there's a massive slaughter. Now people have asked, did this really happen? 50,070 men. And some scholars believe that there was a scribal error. Somewhere along the line, one of the scribes writing this made an error. And it's not actually 50,070. It's actually only 70 who died. And there were 50,000 in the whole city. So out of a city of 50,000, 70 died. Rick, what do you think? I think it was, as it says, a great slaughter. And comparing 70 in this chapter to 34,000 in the previous, in chapter 4, 34,000 was called a great slaughter. 34,000 versus 70? Is 70 a great slaughter by comparison? It's really not. Besides the fact... If we go around looking at scripture and going, oh, that can't be, it must have been a scribal error, where do we stop? Where do we stop and just say, oh, well, no, that's not what it meant. That was just a mistake somewhere along the last, you know, 4,000 years. And I repeat the question I've asked before, is God not able to protect his word? I believe he is. And so I believe what we have is legitimate, is right. Now I'm going to talk about this more on Sunday morning. But what is this timeless teacher saying right now? I will give you a hint. What would the Israelites have to remove to look into the ark? The mercy seat. The mercy seat. I'm not going to tell you anything more. Come back Sunday and we'll talk about what that has to do with this whole thing. The mercy seat. Think about it. But there's something else here. There's an atmosphere in Israel that was brought about by all of this. And this brings us back to where we began. We're going to do chapter 7, but look, it's only 17 verses. We'll be through it really quick. So hang with me a few more minutes here. There's an atmosphere in Israel that needed to come about. And this is where I started. The way to handle terror in our world is fear. But it's a right fear. If we have fear, we will be able to handle terror. Watch this. Verse 1 of chapter 7. The men of Kiriath-Jerim came and they took the ark of the Lord. They brought it into the house of Abinadab on a hill and consecrated Eliezer his son to keep the ark of the Lord. And from the day that the ark remained at Kiriath-Jerim, the time was long. It was 20 years. No one would get it out of there. People were scared to death of this thing. And all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. What's going on? They're scared. They are fearful. They are weeping. They are lamenting after the Lord. They are finally in that place of what we could call holy fear. They are finally realizing that God is not a God just to cast aside. Just to blow off. It's no big deal. It's just God. He'll be there next Sunday. He'll show up next. Well, who cares? It just doesn't matter. I've had a long day. Holy fear. They're in that place of holy fear. And Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Proverbs 9.10, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. I used to think that word fear, which we like to translate awe, I used to water it down. Well, it's not the fear. God doesn't want us afraid of Him. It's the awe. I'm so impressed with you, Lord. No, it is a fearful awe. It is the type of fear that we will feel when we first see Jesus. And I know it's real romantic to think and say, hey, when we first see Jesus, we're going to run up to him and just grab him. It's love my Jesus. When we first see Jesus, we will go flat on our faces. We will be flatter to the floor than Dagon was. Because we will understand what holy fear really is. We'll be in the presence of the glory of God. 
And every single person, Jesus' best friend John, in Revelation chapter 1, turns around, sees Jesus, and boom, hits the ground like a dead man. Holy fear. The Bible tells us, Psalm 34 verse 7, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. Great verse. That word angel, it's the Hebrew malach, it means messenger. And Samuel, by the way, is the messenger. And now at this place, in time, they have this holy fear and the messenger begins to speak. Verse 3, then Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel saying, three things you can note here. If you return to the Lord with all your heart, remove the foreign gods and the Asherah from among you and direct your hearts to the Lord and serve Him alone. He will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. And I really like Samuel. What a great prophet. This is the one judge, the last of the judges, judge number 15, if you're counting, who finally delivers Israel spiritually, not just physically, not just militarily. The rest of the judges, it was military battles that they fought to, to rescue Israel. This judge says, here's the deal. You want to deal with the terrorism of the Philistines? Because that's what the Philistines were in that day. Terrorists. Terrorizing Israel. Pecking at, the, at, their, at their sides. Attacking from when least expected. You want to deal with terrorism? Fear is the answer. Not fear of the terrorists. Fear of the Lord. A fear of the Lord. Again, I watched yesterday morning the 9-11 commemoration that was being shown. I believe it was in SNBC. It was one of the, the news stations there on cable that are all together and I was flipping. And one, one was showing a replay of the entire morning. And I sat there for an hour and watched the towers fall again. And I listened to the talk that was going on and saying Colin Powell is making his way right now back from a foreign country. And, and, and President Bush and they went over to Bush talking to the school children. Do you all remember that? He was talking to school kids and doing an education program when he heard about this. And made his way back, got on an Air Force One, takes off and he's flying around. And they're talking about all this. And it, it was amazing to me. Everything just, just kind of hit me. What we went through six years ago and how the country was affected, how you and I were all affected by this thing. We were drawn together. I remember going to a James Taylor concert a week later and being in a, down at the um, Key Arena, just packed with people and everybody. You know, James is singing and he talks about how we've fallen on hard times and, and we're all singing these songs together, not spiritual songs. You know, we had our lighters out and doing that thing. And, but we were connected as Americans. There was a spiritual connection there. We were shaken to the core with fear. But it was the wrong kind of fear. It was the wrong kind of fear. If we want freedom from terror in our country today, there's only one way we're ever going to get it, and it's by turning back to the Lord. It's not going to happen any other way. My opinion, Rick's opinion, the real problem with terrorism in the world today is not that we stirred up a hornet's nest in Iraq. That's not the problem. It's not that we have an Israeli-bent foreign policy. That is not the problem. But Osama bin Laden said, I know what Osama bin idiot said. That's not the problem. It's not that Middle Eastern radicals hate our lifestyle. That is not the problem of terrorism today. The problem is the protection is running thin for America because we've gone from being one nation under God to a country of pluralism that welcomes any God. And that's really what's happened here, isn't it? It's only taken us 200 years to do it. We started off with our forefathers talking about the Judeo-Christian God. One God for this country. One nation under God. And we are now absolutely pluralistic, welcoming and tolerating many gods. And that was Israel's problem. It wasn't the outright rejection of Jehovah. It was their acceptance of Dagon. Ashtaroth, Baal, Molech, and all the gods of the Canaanites. That was the problem. We love you, Lord, but we tolerate this. We believe in you, but we kind of like the way this looks in our town. And so it's you and, it's Jesus and, and that's the problem we have today. And Samuel, wonderful Samuel, says three things that you have to do. Return to the Lord with all your heart. Remove the foreign gods from among you and direct your hearts to the Lord and serve Him alone. And that will solve the issue of terror in the world. Now the thing is, and you may be saying this in your own mind, it's not going to happen for America, Rick. I just don't see it happening. And I don't call you a pessimist for saying that because I don't see it happening either. 
Reality is the pressure to capitulate and give in to universal tolerance and pluralistic acceptance is greater today than it's ever been in the history of our country. The greatest pressure on the church is stop being intolerant of all these other gods. And just accept people the way they are. Just bring in the gods. People say, you Christians, do you really believe there's only one way? Yeah, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me, Jesus said. There's salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Peter said, Acts chapter 4, verse 12. And I say that to encourage you, brothers and sisters, do not give up on this absolute truth. Don't give in to the lie of tolerance, because tolerance in our country is simply pluralism. It is not tolerance. Well, that's narrow-minded. Narrow-minded. Interesting phrase. I believe it was Jesus in Matthew 7.13 who said, Enter through the narrow gate. So the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it. The gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life and there are few who find it. Luke chapter 13 verse 24. Strive to enter through the narrow door for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. And if that's being narrow-minded, then that's what I am. That's the next t-shirt I want. Narrow-minded. With a very, very tiny door right there. Whether America ever returns to its Judeo-Christian roots or not, gang, the way we deal with terror in our own lives is by listening to Samuel's words. Return to the Lord. Again, if you need to. Again and again. Remove your foreign gods and redirect or direct your heart to the Lord. And so the sons of Israel removed the Baals and the Ashtaroth and they served the Lord alone. And Samuel said, Gather all Israel to Mizpah and I will pray to the Lord for you. By the way, notice the order there. The sons of Israel removed the Baals first and then Samuel prayed for them. They cleaned out the junk there. Samuel prayed for them and they gathered to Mizpah and it says, verse 6, is interesting, they drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged or, or pled for or interceded for, delivered the sons of Israel and Mizpah. Why did they draw water out and pour it out? It was a sign that they were pouring out their hearts. Water, very precious in Israel then as now, they poured out before the Lord just to say, everything we are. We pour out before you, here, Lord. And so Samuel delivers them. I like that at Mizpah. And verse 7 going on says, Now when the Philistines heard that the sons of Israel had gathered to Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. Here they come. Here come the terrorists. They're right back again at it. And when the sons of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And then the sons of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry to the Lord our God for us, that He may save us from the hand of the Philistines. Amen. They finally get it. It's not it back in chapter 4. It's not the ark that can save them. Cry out to God for He. He's the one. He can save us from the hand of the Philistines. Verse 9, it tells us Samuel took a suckling lamb and offered it for a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. What does it take for the Lord to hear his people's cry? A lamb is offered. A lamb is offered. The prayer is given, and the Lord heard. And my friends, the lamb has been offered for you and for me. And now all that's left is for the prayer to be lifted up. For the person who doesn't believe in Jesus, the Lamb has been offered. All they have to do is cry out to the Lord. And as Peter writes, he says, We were redeemed, 1 Peter 1.19, with precious blood as of a Lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. And verse 10 says, Now Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, and the Philistines drew near to battle against Israel. But the Lord, Israel doesn't even pick up a weapon here. I love this. The Lord thundered, with a great thunder on that day against the Philistines and confused them so that they were routed before Israel. And by the way, remember Dagon, father, father of Baal according to the Philistines? And Baal was the god of thunder. And God thundered with a mighty thunder and routed the people. He took away the very thing that they thought made Baal strong. And the god of Israel thundered against them 
And God will often do this in the history of Israel. As we study these things, we've seen it before and we'll see it again, where He uses the very power of the God of the enemy, of what they believe their God is capable of doing, and He uses it to show them that there really is one God. The men of Israel went out of Mizpah and they pursued the Philistines and struck them down as far as below Bethkar. Verse 12, Then Samuel took a stone and set it between Mizpah and Shen and named it Ebenezer, saying, Thus far the Lord has helped us. Ebenezer, it means the helping stone. The stone of help. They say, Thus far God has not failed us. It's the stone of remembrance. I really like this. This whole idea of the Ebenezer stone. In fact, last night we were sitting and praying with a group that are they're getting ready to go to the Philistines. Philistines. Philippines. <laughs> Can't go to the Philistines anymore. So, and we were praying last night. And Brian Young, one of our one of our missionaries, was there with us, and, and he's praying. You remember what he said? He said he he mentioned the Ebenezer stone. I just read this that afternoon. I was like. He said, wait, Lord, this is our Ebenezer stone. And had I not read this, I wouldn't have had any idea. Your Ebenezer stone? Gesundheit. <laughs> what do you mean, Ebenezer? What are, you, what are you talking about? The Ebenezer stone, it's the stone of help. The stone of remembrance is the stone that says, thus far the Lord has helped us, and you have one. I have one. We have the stone of help. The stone that we can look at and say, you know, I don't know about tomorrow, but I know thus far. The Lord has been with me. And so I don't worry about tomorrow because He has proven Himself time and time again. What is that Ebenezer stone? Jesus said to them, Did you never read in the Scriptures, Matthew 21, 42, quote, The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord and it is marvelous in our eyes. Jesus, the rock of our salvation, is our Ebenezer. He is the stone of help. And all you need do is remember that when you're a little nervous about what tomorrow may bring, hey, wait a minute, wait a minute. Thus far, God has been there. And though I may be faithless, He is faithful. He will not let me down. So the Philistines were subdued. And they did not come anymore within the border of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. Why? Because Samuel was an intercessor. Because Samuel cried out to the Lord for the people. Because he delivered them spiritually. And the cities which the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel, from Ekron even to Gath. And Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. So there was peace between Israel and the Amorites. Now Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. And he used to go annually on circuit to Bethel and Gilgal and Mizpah, and he judged Israel in all these places. He's the first circuit preacher that we have on record. He would go from town to town, 50 miles in, in radius. And he would stay in a town and preach for a while and he'd go on to the next day and preach and he would continually care for the people of Israel this way. And then his return was to Ramah for his house was there. And I like this. Samuel there, it says he judged Israel and he built there an altar to the Lord. In his home. He built an altar to the Lord. Kind of like an Ebenezer stone, a stone of remembrance. He had an altar there because worship begins at home. A changed life begins there and then goes on circuit through the rest of the world. And so just a little side note at the end here, your worship, your love of the Lord has got to be first at home. We, We miss that sometimes. We get out there and we start serving the Lord all out here and doing this thing. We're riding the circuit, but our house is a mess. Our marriage is, is, is not right before the Lord. Our, our parenting is just it's not right before the Lord. And, but we want to serve the Lord. And so we're out here serving and doing these things. And, and I think the Bible indicates we need to have the altar at home where our focus is on the Lord there first. And when it's solid there, boy, out here is great. Out here is wonderful. But make it solid at home. Now I began with this statement about Israel. In essence, where Israel stands, I stand with her. Regardless of whether they're right or in the wrong, as we have seen, it's been a roller coaster ride with Israel since they came back into the land and prior to that. They're not always in the right. Sometimes they they do wonderful, breathtaking, right things. And then they just hit the very depths of despair. Up and down they go. We don't stand with with them because of the right or the wrong. We stand with them 
Because it's the right thing to do. And because until the Lord tells us otherwise, we would be wise to stand with Israel. We need to learn from the Philistines who came against them, who didn't learn their history from Egypt. We need to learn from what happened in Egypt. We need to look back and learn from what happened to the Romans who went against Israel. Whatever happened to Rome as it just dissipated and came apart. We need to learn from the Turks. We need to learn from the British and how they dealt with Israel and where they are now today versus where they were back in the early 1900s. Much stronger country than they are today. Well, when you turn your back on Israel, guess what? You start to lose protection. I'll leave you with this verse. Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. God said to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Have you been blessed by the story of Israel tonight? And praise God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, we thank you, we thank you for showing us the things you've shown us. Lord, from, from your sense of humor to, to Father, your stunning judgment. And we do fear you, Lord, with a holy fear. And we do pray, Father, that in coming days you will help us understand that a little bit better. Because we realize that your angel encamps around those who fear the Lord and rescues them. So Jesus, be our rescuer, our perfect lamb, our Ebenezer stone, all these things that we studied tonight. Once again, all these pictures, wonderful pictures of you, Lord Jesus. Hold every thought captive to you, Jesus. And come quickly. We can't wait to see you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Alright, so Sunday morning, they lift the mercy seat off of the top of the ark, and a great slaughter occurs, and we'll talk about why on Sunday.